Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rokraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have a new style pod for you. We are doing a mock debate of Oscar categories from the 2010s. But before we get into that, we do want to just take a moment to celebrate the life of Sean Connery, who passed away on Halloween at the age of 90. What a life. He, of course, is best known for playing James Bond. And I personally have always seen him as the only James Bond. I know there are others, but when I think of Bond, I think of Sean Connery for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think the most memorable and iconic of the Bonds. So he was in the first five Bond films. So Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, and You Only Live Twice. And then he appeared again in Diamonds Are Forever in 1971 and Never Say Never Again in 1983. My favorite fact actually about Sean Connery is through his casting. So when he was originally considered for the part of Bond, Dana Broccoli, the wife of producer Cubby Broccoli, she was really instrumental in getting him the role because he doubted it, but she was the one who was like, no, I think that he would be really perfect for it. And Ian Fleming also thought that he was wrong for the part, but then his girlfriend at the time, Blanche Blackwell, said that he had that sexual charisma. So these women knew what Bond should be <laughs> and were definitely instrumental in the choice, which I think is really funny. His last acting credit was in 2012. We haven't really seen him for a while, but also some iconic moments from the end of his career from Entrapment and oh, a different Avengers, but a 1998 <laughs> version of the Avengers, I guess. And he also, of course, won his Oscar for The Untouchables, where he won for Best Supporting Actor in 1987. So he he didn't win for Bond, but he did end up winning an Oscar and also ended up getting the Cecil B. DeMille Award at the Golden Globes. So another thing that we do have to mention before we get started. So on our last episode, the Mank reviews came out. We won't say anything about them. I've been trying to avoid it. I muted the word on Twitter, but Mank has been on the brain. So last week when I talked about Rebecca, I said that Mankowitz and Hitchcock were in this feud and I actually meant David O. Selznick, which is a crucial error. But I will say that I did read that that back to talking about Mank, that Selznick will actually be in Mank and he's going to be played by Toby Leonard Moore, who was in John Wick and I think had some TV appearances too, like Billions and other things, but we'll see both of them in that. Can't wait. That'll be in a couple weeks. It comes out in theaters. Can't wait. All right. So a reminder, our categories that we will be doing for these debates, we will be talking about Best Picture from 2015, Best Director from 2013, Best Actor from 2012, and Best Actress from 2018. So we're going to start with Best Actor from 2012. So I will be taking the side of the Academy and arguing for Daniel Day-Lewis. And I will be pitching for any of the other nominees. So that year we had Bradley Cooper from Silver Linings Playbook, Hugh Jackman for Les Mis, Joaquin Phoenix for The Master, and Denzel Washington for Flight. So I think the way we do this is I'll go first or the Academy side goes first, then you can pitch your side and then we can discuss. All right. So Daniel Day-Lewis, one of my favorites, won his third Best Actor Oscar for playing Abraham Lincoln in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln, which I know you're not a fan of, but... 
I'm here to talk about the performance, not about the film so much. So over the years, I think that we've seen so many actors try to get biopics right. And I think that it becomes sort of a joke in the Academy when we see these performers who win for, you know, just putting on a lot of makeup, putting a fat suit on, doing the voice, and it's this full-scale transformation. But I think that it is such an incredible challenge to play someone like Abraham Lincoln, who is so mythologized, and to get the spirit of this hero right without making him into a caricature. And that's what I think Daniel Day-Lewis does so well. I think that in preparing for this and thinking about Lincoln and thinking about Daniel Day-Lewis in the role, I watched a lot of interviews with him and Steven Spielberg talking about how he found the voice specifically for the role. And I think that Lincoln is someone we've seen portrayed in a variety of films and even at like baseball games and (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis to me is Lincoln and I think there's historical evidence in the form of contemporary accounts that Lincoln had this high-pitched voice and Daniel Day-Lewis had this theory that he thought that higher voices made you a better speaker because they carried better in crowds. We hear stories of early on in the sets when he did one of the first scenes that he filmed was the 13th Amendment scene and apparently everyone's jaw was just on the floor. And he was so hesitant to take this role because Lincoln is this American icon and Daniel Day-Lewis is British and he didn't want to take it. But he told Spielberg that he needed a year if he was going to play Lincoln. He's like, fine, you can get me, but I need a year to find him. And he said, it sounds pretentious. I know. I recognize all the practical work that needs to be done, the dirty work, which I love, the work in the soil, the rooting around in the hope that you might find a gem. But I need to believe that there is a cohesive mystery that ties all these things together and I try not to separate them. I think we talk a lot about his process and make it sound like he's some deity of sorts, but I think here it is just the perfect biopic performance, but also just this incredible work of art. I mean, it's just what I think every actor hopes for and he got it. Uh, I'm not sure I have that much to say about (laughs) the people. And I don't disagree with anything you're saying. I think out of the bunch, DDL is definitely the most seasoned actor besides Denzel, but I don't think, I mean, we just talked about Flight and how I haven't seen it. But I think DDL's performance as both of these films being like actor showcases, I think he had a much stronger performance and capturing someone who is much more important. I think maybe the runner up would have been Joaquin and that's really who I would have picked this year. I think his performance in The Master is truly transformative and I think he deserved it way more for this than Joker. (laughs) Just because again I don't want to award Joker. Mm -hmm. I do think his performance performance was just as chilling in that but I think in the master he just dives in and he's really at Philip Seymour Hoffman's every word and he totes him around like his little puppet and there are so many good scenes from this movie where you know they could show it at the Oscars and this would be like a defining winning scene for Joaquin I mean you have the intro scene on the boat and then you have the scene when he's working as a photographer and he just totally terrorizes this man 
man Mm -hmm. later on in the film when Philip Seymour Hoffman is interviewing him and he starts questioning and he can't blink and they start the conversation over. I think that's really a great moment for him. And I mean, I'm surprised he didn't injure himself or he probably did. I I don't know. But he just dives in so deep to this role and is consumed, I think. And to me, it was the most memorable of his for sure. I mean, before he was nominated for Gladiator and then Walk the Line and then at the Golden Globes, both of those performances before and then also nominated for Her, which came the year after The Master and then Inherent Vice as well as Joker, which he won both of. I think Joaquin is amazing in The Master. I love The Master. It's one of my favorite PTA films. But for me, I think what's almost sad is that he had to go up against Daniel Day-Lewis for this. I don't know if it is the type of performance that the Academy would have awarded. What I will say about Joaquin there is that, so there's this great Catherine Hepburn quote that I really love, which is the right actors win Oscars for the wrong roles. And I think that's a case for him where you can say, you know, the master is his best role, but the way that the competition shook out, it's like no one was going to beat Daniel Day-Lewis. To me, no one should have beaten Daniel Day-Lewis. But I think too, with the master, why I wouldn't pick him over Daniel Day-Lewis is that for me, Philip Seymour Hoffman is the one in the movie. Like he's the one who steals it. And I think that if you're running number two in a movie, sometimes you can both win. Philip Seymour Hoffman didn't even win, which is crazy. But getting to play Lincoln and doing it right and doing that role justice is that's the clear winner to me. And I think that the Academy doesn't get this category right very often. But I think for this one, it was right. So speaking of supporting, Philip Seymour Hoffman lost this year to Christoph Waltz from Django Unchanged, which I think is blasphemous. I, I do like Django. Let me say that in a different way. I I liked the movie and the performances, but I think, again, The Master has so many great performances by all of their top stars, Amy Adams included, and I think they all three deserved awards for these, and nobody got anything. And I think that adds to the fact that The Master is a stronger film, at least for me, than Lincoln, because I see it as more of like a Daniel Day-Lewis film with Sally Field supporting. And I don't remember anything but that yeah well unfortunately for you and for this category it's best actor not best picture so I will agree I prefer the master as a film but as an actor Daniel Day-Lewis runs away with this one for me and I do agree that this is a more problematic film for the academy I mean it's about Scientology and these people preaching and amongst voters I know that's just maybe too political and just controversial and Lincoln being by Spielberg having this huge huge titular performance I think just appealed so so well he needed to knock it out of the park and obviously he did so I think that was an easy win for him that year across the board I mean BAFTA's Golden Globes Oscars they all went to him it was a good year to be a Daniel Day-Lewis fan. His speech is so lovely. He's like a tear in his eye and Meryl just looks so excited to give him the award and he's wearing a great blue suit. Highly recommend watching the speech. All right, so do we want to move on to Best Actress? Yes, let's do it. Probably one of my favorite years and wins ever was when Olivia Coleman clinched the win here and I think Glenn was probably getting out of her seat ready for them to read her name. (laughs) 
<laughs> as they had at every previous award ceremony that year. Man, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you could just see it in her eyes how annoyingly empty she felt after her name wasn't called after being snubbed for so many years in performances. But I will say that I was rooting for Olivia Coleman all the way as she starred as Anne, Queen of Great Britain in The Favorite, which was one of my, I think, top two films of 2018. Again, comparing my argument for Joaquin, I think she has so many scenes throughout this film that could be showcased as just an immediate win for her. And I think she's completely engrossed by this role. And there's no moment where you're either transfixed or so captivated by her humor in this role as any Lanthimos film is and I think he used all of her abilities here in this farcical performance of the queen and you have Emma Stone and Rachel Weisz fighting over her which just adds to the fun of everything. I think Olivia Coleman is an amazing actress. We've seen so many amazing performances from her before and a lot of it has been from television. Yeah she's one of those that's in so many British TV shows and things that I saw on BBC over the years (laughs) that when I finally saw her in The Favorite, it was this moment of pride for my inner Anglophile that it's like, everyone's going to know Olivia Coleman now. This is so wonderful. And now, of course, she is in The Crown. She's in The Father, which will come out later this year, but it's already premiered at festivals, which I can't wait to talk about that one on a future pod. And I think what also solidified her win here is that she did become somebody else for this performance. Yeah. So you talked about the three women, like Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone and Olivia Coleman. One, I have to say, I adore Olivia Coleman, but I will be stumping for Glenn Close here as it's my job on this podcast at this moment to do and what I'm going to say I think to start is that Olivia Coleman is a classic case of category fraud Olivia Coleman was in the favorite for 47 minutes and 5 seconds and Emma Stone was in the favorite for 56 minutes and 17 seconds making Emma Stone the lead and also the titular character, the favorite. So I think that it was some very smart awards campaigning and strategy from Searchlight to put one of them in lead and two in supporting. And they just happened to choose Emma and Rachel, who had both won before, put them in supporting, put Olivia in lead, which is a much easier path, I think, to victory than if she would have been in supporting or if all three of them would have been in lead. So I feel like we shouldn't have been surprised the Olivia Coleman one because she's playing a real person, which the Academy really loves. It is a very showy performance. But to me, she didn't carry the film. And you know who carried a dull film, at least across the finish line, kind of? Glenn Close. <laughs> so I'm not a fan of The Wife. I find it to be just, like I said, very dull. But I went for Glenn Close. And Glenn, to me, is this living legend and you know one of my favorite people. And it makes me sad that she's just like in this class of people like Meryl Streep and Sissy Spacek and Sally Field and these actresses who've all won. And she hasn't won before in six Oscar nominations. She's won three Tonys. She's won three Emmys. But she hasn't gotten that Oscar yet. And like she wore the gold dress to the Oscars. And I know that it's Best Actress. It's not Best Actress who's never won before. But there was so much in Glenn's performance that I really loved. And it was, for me, what saved the film. She has better performances than this one. But I think that this, she was very still, very understated. And I think that, I like when in films when women are just simmering and they're not completely over the top. 
Like, I feel like I'll always be drawn to those types of performances in most cases. And to me, that's what Glenn did here. And I think we also have to talk about now that because she didn't win here, she might win for Hillbilly Elegy. I don't know how I feel about that. But I think here, it was a great performance. She is the reason to watch the movie. And if you haven't seen The Wife, I think it is worth it just for Glenn. And then you can forget about it forever. I definitely agree that she's much more calculated here than Olivia. Mm -hmm. Olivia is very over the top. She's brash. And that's just that Victorian caricature that you have. And I think Glenn plays such a smart character. But it's hard when she's so controlled and it's more of a what you see under the surface performance of what's going on in her head. And I think it really ran at the time with the Me Too movement that was happening. I guess I'm having trouble pinpointing why I don't like it though. Because it's boring. It's There's nothing memorable about it besides Glenn. And like the favorite is this Lanthimos movie that is, I mean, I think it's impossible to forget. It's wicked fun. It has this performance where Olivia is just so demented. I mean, it's out of control. It's amazing acting. But for me, it's like Glenn lost because people thought she was going to win. And that's what's sad about it is that, you know, she won the SAG Award. She won a Golden Globe. I will say Olivia won the comedy Golden Globe. So I think that was another place where people didn't see it coming potentially when they were comparing Glenn's awards to Olivia's. But honestly, they weren't even thinking about Olivia. I think that the Lady Gaga of it all really overshadowed the potential for Olivia to come in. And I think that ultimately, you know, Academy members, there is a contingent that are British stage actors who vote for British people to win. And I think that Glenn definitely lost because of a potential vote split between her and Gaga, but also because people thought she was going to win. So they didn't vote for her. They threw their vote behind Olivia, who they thought was amazing, but that wouldn't win. And then she did. Poor Glenn. I mean, that's like the only thing I can say. (laughs) I mean, I love everything about The Favorite. You mentioned a few things already, but the script is just so outlandish and fun, Mm -hmm. and the editing is really great. The score they use, every single moment makes this so rewatchable for me. Yeah, I really loved it. I do say, like, I do prefer period films that are a bit more subtle in their humor. It's like Barry Lyndon and Marie Antoinette. I guess my thing with it, though, is just like, I don't see Olivia as the lead, which is why I'm like coming back to the fact that Glenn just should have won here and Olivia should have run in supporting. And we don't know what could have happened there. If all three of them would have been in supporting, it definitely would have been a vote split. And I don't know if any of them would have won, but I think if her performance was truly the strongest in the movie, then she could have won there. Yeah, I remember the conversation at the time and thinking that they all had pretty equal screen time, but I knew there was no way they'd all run supporting. So I was okay with Queen Elizabeth as this reigning character running in lead, even if it was category fraud. I'm interested to see with the trial of the Chicago 7 this year, how many actually get nominated since they did announce that they were all running and supporting Mm -hmm. or who they push hardest. Because again, if there has been a win, it has to have been really, really rare for a split to actually lead to one of them winning. I think Regina King was strong this year, but I think she won for basically one scene where she breaks down when she goes to Puerto Rico. 
And with Emma and Rachel having been in their film so much longer than Regina, I wonder what the final numbers were because I feel like it could have been really close. Specifically in the supporting actress category, it's happened quite a few times where multiple people were nominated from the same movie, but not very many times has it happened where any of them have won. Most recently, it happened in 2012 with The Help, where... Jessica Chastain and Octavia Spencer were both nominated and Octavia Spencer ended up winning. But it's pretty rare that anyone does this. Like a couple examples we have, 2003, Queen Latifah and Catherine Zeta-Jones were both nominated for Chicago. Catherine Zeta-Jones won. Tootsie, we had Terry Garr and Jessica Lange. Jessica Lange ended up winning. Kramer versus Kramer, we had Jane Alexander and Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep ended up winning. But there aren't a ton of examples where this happens. And if we go back way far, we have things like Mrs. Miniver with Teresa Wright winning and Gone with the Wind, of course, which was the first case of this happening where Hattie McDaniel beat Olivia de Havilland. And so if we look at the times that this has happened where multiple people have been nominated and no one from the film has won, that's 22 times. So two thirds. (laughs) Wow, so double the amount where they split the vote and they end up losing, which is why I'm not surprised Emma or Rachel didn't win. When we go back and look at a few examples of a split leading to no wins, there's 1985 in The Color Purple, Oprah and Margaret Avery lost to Angelica Houston, 1986, Joan Cusack and Sigourney Weaver in Working Girl lost to Gina Davis. There are a few others, but then in 2008 with Doubt, we had... Amy Adams and Viola Davis both lost to Penelope Cruz. And then in 2009, Vera Farmiga and Anna Kendrick in Up in the Air lost to Monique. So it seems also like awards strategy, like people are getting smarter with where to campaign and slot actors in because this never happens with lead. We haven't had two leads nominated from the same film since 1992 with Thelma and Louise on the actress side, which Jodie Foster ended up winning for Silence of the Lambs. And on the actor side, we had Amadeus was the last time it happened. And F. Murray Abraham actually did win. So it can happen, but it's much more rare for them to actually run two leads from the same movie because I think they know it's not going to happen. Well, now that we've had this conversation, it makes me happy that they ran Olivia in lead and I'm (laughs) totally fine with it. And we got one of the most iconic acceptance speeches ever. So I'm very happy. All right. So before we get into director and picture, we're going to take a quick break for a fun game. When we were discussing which years to pick, we really had the hardest time with best actor because there have been so many winners where we're like there's no way where we could ever fight for them (laughs) which is how we landed on Daniel Day-Lewis of course what we're going to do we're going to go through each year of the 2010s we're going to say who won and then we're going to count to three and when we get to three we're at the same time going to say who we would give the Oscar to it can be the winner so we can agree with it We're going to skip 2012, though, because we just discussed it. And if we agree on the person, then that person can technically like dethrone the winner here on Oscar Wilde. So are you ready? And if they don't, it stays as is. Yes, correct. And we have to be honest. We can't say who the other person would pick just to cheat. Okay, so for 2010, we have Colin Firth winning for the King's Speech. The other nominees include Javier Bardem, Jeff Bridges, Jesse Eisenberg, and James Franco. A very J-filled year. That's what I was just going to say. Lots of J's. (laughs) Okay, ready? One, two, three, 
Jesse Eisenberg. Eisenberg. Yes. Okay. Great. All right. I'm just not sure if he deserved best actor for this performance, but (laughs) out of this year of nominees, I guess that's who I'd give it to. Yeah. Well, all right. So now our new 2010 winner is Jesse Eisenberg for The Social Network. Okay. 2011, Jean Dujardin won for The Artist. We had... Damien Bashir, I think that's how you say his name, for A Better Life. George Clooney, Gary Oldman, and Brad Pitt. Okay, one, two, three. Damien Brad Pitt. Bashir. No! <laughs> what? I haven't seen Moneyball in so long, but I don't think Brad has some crazy, amazing performance. I think it's one of his best performances actually ever. All right, we're stuck with Jean Dujardin for the artist. <laughs> okay, so now we're moving to 2013. We're skipping over 2012. Matthew McConaughey won for Dallas Buyers Club. The other nominees included Christian Bale, Bruce Stern, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. Okay, one, two, three, Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay, yay, we agree. All right, so Matthew McConaughey, winner no more. We have Leonardo DiCaprio for The Wolf of Wall Street. All right, 2014, we had Eddie Redmayne, who won for The Theory of Everything, Steve Carell for Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper for American Sniper, Benedict Cumberbatch for The Imitation Game, and Michael Keaton for Birdman. One, two, three, Michael Keaton. No! I think another year where his performance was amazing and transformative and Michael Keaton was really unsettling, but I think the Academy got it right on this one. I'm just like, I'm really shocked right now. (laughs) Michael Keaton, like Birdman was supposed to be his Oscar winning movie. And then we had Eddie Redmayne, like that movie's not... Yeah, Birdman's good, and Michael Keaton's really good in it, too, and he just didn't get the, you know, transformation Oscar. Okay, the next year for 2015, Leonardo DiCaprio finally won his Oscar for The Revenant. The other nominees included Brian Cranston, Matt Damon, Michael Fassbender, and Eddie Redmayne. All right. One, two, three, Matt Damon. Oh my god, I hated The Martian. The Martian is not good, but I gave Leonardo DiCaprio his Oscar for The Wolf of Wall Street, and Matt Damon carries the movie. I think he's a movie star, and I would give him an Oscar for that, because I think it's totally his movie. And The Revenant, I've seen it once, and I will never watch it again. Same, but I still think Leo can have two Oscars. That's fine, and it should have been maybe something else, so not The Revenant. Okay, 2016, we had Casey Affleck won for Manchester by the Sea, Andrew Garfield for Hacksaw Ridge, Ryan Gosling for La La Land, Viggo Mortensen for Captain Fantastic, and Denzel Washington for Fences. One, two, three, Casey Affleck. Viggo? What? (laughs) Denzel was better in Fences than Viggo was in Captain Fantastic. Fences was such a dull movie, though. It was. It's very, it feels like a play. Like, it really feels like a play. And I think Vigo has some really emotional moments and does an amazing job with the story. It's a great movie. Okay. And I wasn't going to give it to Ryan, even though I love La La Land. Okay. That's, you know, it's fine. So Casey Affleck stays the winner. Oh, good. Well, you got your pick then. Okay, one of the darkest years for the acting category. Gary Oldman winning for The Darkest Hour, Timothy Chalamet, Daniel Day-Lewis, 
Daniel Kaluuya, and Denzel Washington. I might go rogue here because it might be worth it. I know who you would pick. So if you don't pick him, then... One, two, three, Timothy Chalamet. (laughs) Timothy Chalamet is my third pick here, but... You knew I'd pick him. Yeah, I did. (laughs) And I like that performance so much more than Gary Oldman's. And I think too, it's like he's... broke your own rule. I broke my own rule, yes, but... (laughs) All right, fine. Gary Oldman can get to stay because I cheated. (laughs) I won't do it again. (laughs) Another dark year. In 2018, we had Rami Malek win for Bohemian Rhapsody. Other nominees were Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, Willem Dafoe, and Viggo Mortensen. If you disagree with me here. One, two, three, Bradley Cooper. Okay, good. (laughs) So our new winner is Bradley Cooper for A Star Is Born. Goodbye, Rami, and your fake teeth. Our final year, 2019, Joaquin won for Joker. Our other nominees included Antonio Banderas, Leonardo DiCaprio, Adam Driver, and Jonathan Price. All right. One, two, three, Adam Driver. Yes. Okay. okay. I was a little scared you were going to say Antonio Banderas, who was like my other one that I really liked, but... I almost thought you would have said Leo. Leo, I really loved in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't think we talk about it enough, but I wish I could really take away Leo's Revenant Oscar and give him the Oscar for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Wolf of Wall Street. That's where I would put his two, but Adam Driver's performance was the standout of the year for me, so he's our new winner. All right, so now let's move on to our final two categories. We'll start with Best Director from 2013, and for this, you're going to have the side of the Academy. You lead the way. Okay, so... (laughs) I think we've mentioned this before on the pod or how much we both like or dislike gravity. I think what Quaron did here inspired a lot of the modern space film genres and ideas that we get after this. I love this movie and I think the way he made this movie was new mm-hmm. for space films. I think Quaron is such a diverse director, which I really love. And I think each time he comes out with something, it's just totally unexpected. His biggest movies before this were Itumama Tambien, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Children of Men. Mm-hmm. And then after this, we got Roma, which was a huge film as well. But I think what makes Gravity so unique and important is how all of its elements come together. I think the acting is such a small part of it. And his use of visual effects here are really strong. I think the score is great. I think you're going to say something about the story here. I'm ready. (laughs) I'm going to wait my turn though. So (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a smaller film that deserved all of the awards it got. So at the Oscars, it won seven out of its 10 nominations which is huge. And I think the fact that it's split picture director with 12 Years a Slave was respectable. Eh. <laughs> I, I think Quaron's craft was exemplary. And I think the way Quaron puts so many twists and turns into this movie really captivates the audience. And I think that's, to me, also why it's so strong. So go ahead, non-academy... <laughs> Okay. So what I'm going to say first before I get into who my choice would have been, I think that everyone probably knows by now who I'm going to pick. But what I will say, these nominees, we had Quaron who won, Steve McQueen for 12 Years a Slave, Alexander Payne for Nebraska, David O. Russell for American Hustle, and Martin Scorsese for The Wolf of Wall Street. Where, oh where, are the Coen brothers for Inside Lewin Davis, which five-star film of the year, and... 
Spike Jones for her. Totally. Get rid of Nebraska. Get rid of American Hustle. Like, just push them out. Get those new guys in there. We'd have an even better conversation because what I'm going to say is it should have been Martin Scorsese's Best Director Oscar. Second, he can keep his for The Departed, even though, I mean, that's like a late career one. But I'm going to start with a line that I really love from Wesley Morris, who's one of my favorite film critics. He said when he was recapping his movies from that year, he said, On the Wolf of Wall Street, this is the funniest American movie of the year and the most dangerous Scorsese has been in more than two decades. The wolf isn't Belfort. It's big, bad Marty. And like in this movie, he shows everything that he can do, which for someone in a later stage like Scorsese to do is just incredible. I'll get into Gravity and why I like don't really love it. I think Gravity to me is not even in my top 10 space movies. I think that it doesn't have a story. I think it's laughable. Like the characters, I don't feel anything. And from space movies, I think you have to have some type of emotion. And I think that it's beautiful. And I had a really good theater experience seeing it because it was so beautiful. And I was like swept up in the visuals, in the cinematography, it's Lubeski, in the visual effects. I really was captivated by that. But in order for a film to work for me, there has to be a good script. And Scorsese here is playing with tragedy. I think it's the funniest movie of 2013. I think it's the most rewatchable film of the year, even though it's over three hours long. And he's again, you know, he's I think that sometimes people try to conflate Scorsese being an Italian American with him being a gangster film director. But you mentioned Quaron being this director who creates a lot of diverse films. I mean, no one creates more diverse films than Scorsese. Like he does period films, he does comedies, he does do the gangster movies. But I think that it gets criticism sometimes because people say that if you're watching these bad people for three hours, it's some kind of endorsement of their behavior. But I think in reality, we all all when we watch films have a fascination with villains of gross behavior of all this stuff and it doesn't mean that that's how you think you should live your life I think that ultimately Scorsese is using this film as an indictment on their behavior and Michael Chapman the cinematographer for Raging Bull who just died not that long ago he one thing that he said about Scorsese is that that no one knows how to use a camera to elicit emotion like Scorsese. And for me, the last shot of The Wolf of Wall Street is so powerful. And it's something that I think you can put it in this category of directors who make this like late career film to say something about humanity. And it just works so well, even though, and I'm going to talk too long about Scorsese and I'll stop soon. But I think that he uses on the surface his tricks like voiceover and freeze frames and this iconic soundtrack to achieve his goals but here he uses tracking shots that are more breathtaking than other movies he's made and I think that when you're Scorsese and you're upping your own game that's just incredible and he did that here I think he should have won I think Wolf of Wall Street is Scorsese's most rewatchable movie and maybe most fun he obviously has other films that are crafted more eloquently but I think the story here is completely captivating. I would be okay with either of them winning this year. I wonder if this was Quaron's like for his time award because he had so many other films before that were noteworthy. But so did Scorsese. Yeah. And Quaron won again for Roma, the same award. It comes down to 
Wolf of Wall Street being too exuberant of a piece to the point where voters didn't find it satirical. And I think this drug-induced partying Leo was just not what they wanted. And I think that took over. But Sandra Bullock in like her underwear, like walking around, I just like, I can't. I cannot. I love those final <laughs> moments in this movie and the score just blaring. She takes her first step and I'm like fully crying at the end. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, I can't with that Sandy character. Like I just, it's one of the most poorly written characters. <laughs> yes. It's laughable when she's like howling in this spaceship about to die. It's definitely out there, but I think Quaron and Lubezki as a team here were deserving. I think it's more Lubezki than Quaron. And it might be. Yeah. I'll always fight for my dear Marty. <laughs> I mean, and Lubezki did win for this, so... There. There's your award, Gravity. So for best picture, I have an uphill battle to climb. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> This is the toughest. <laughs> okay, so I'm going with the Academy here for Spotlight. Um, <laughs> I actually really love Spotlight, and it holds up as a rewatchable film. And I think it's something that is really understated, and that's why it's not as memorable sometimes as something like Mad Max Fury Road. But I think that that's okay. It is this really thorough procedural drama, similar to All the President's Men, where I do love newspaper movies. I will admit that too. But I think that what makes it unique is actually how it captures emotion and how well it captures the idiosyncrasies and details that most most filmmakers would miss about Boston and how integrated the Catholic Church is into the city and how hard this story actually was for the spotlight team to break and for them to investigate in the first place. And what I find really interesting about it too is how the priests in the story really, they're obviously the villains, but for the most part, they operate outside of the frame. I think in a way that's similar to Zodiac where it focuses on the journalists and this creates more tension and I really love that and I think in addition to that what makes it powerful is it focuses on the smaller failures of people within the Boston Globe who were complicit who for years just didn't do anything about the story who didn't investigate it further and it took someone from outside of the city of Boston to really do anything about it and I think that it is this incredibly realistic portrait of journalism and how the process works and how journalists work. It doesn't really make them out to be these like over-exaggerated heroes. Instead, it highlights their flaws and shows how systems like the media and systems like the Catholic Church really screw people over and don't fight for anyone or anything but money. And I think right now we live in a world where like news is constant and we're always looking for truth but don't know like how to find it. I mean, we're recording this before we know any of the outcomes of the election, which is like so scary but we have all this happening like fake news and everything like that where people don't trust the media and here these journalists were so dedicated to finding the truth and exposing the villains and the truth prevailed but at the end too we see like cardinal law who is the worst of them all basically he ends up getting a better appointment 
gets to go to Rome to a different parish, like at the Vatican. So I think it shows the flaws still of the system, even though they end up breaking this really important story. I think the story is what makes this important and why it won. As a movie, I don't think it needed to be awarded. I'm much happier giving this to Zodiac eight years earlier for this type of story. Like I get that uncinematic thing. The cinematography isn't anything to write home about. You know, I get that. It's not action packed. But I think that for a movie to really be great, it has to have great writing and great performances that come from the writing. I was going to say then award it to best screenplay. It won screenplay, but the ensemble cast, I think, does a lot with it. And I think that the subtlety that the director uses here, Tom McCarthy, to, you know, capture these little things about the city of Boston and showcase these different types of characters and even little things like the pizza place that John Slattery brings Mark Ruffalo pizza from. That's like iconic Boston that only people from Boston would know. Just little things like that. I don't think a director always needs to like flex big to win. I mean, and I think it's a great movie. I I did enjoy the writing. I Mm rewatched it this week. And if you asked me three or four months from now, like, tell me about a moment from the movie, I couldn't do it. I mean, the ending is obviously so chilling. And I like was bawling my eyes out because to imagine like what the trauma these people have gone through and seeing all the cities listed around the world and, you know, seeing my hometown on there, it's just Mm -hmm. like so terrifying to think, you know, this has happened for so long and these institutions are basically allowed to do this because they have power and again i think the story here is so monumental and important and i'm fine with it winning but apart from that like as a film if we're going to talk about that i think you know i will state my case till the day i die about mad max fury road i think there are some okay movies on this list of nominations for the year also i think brooklyn is a perfect film too and i don't think that's a big enough movie to have won. You think Brooklyn is better than Spotlight? I feel like Brooklyn's like way more inconsequential. Like I don't remember hardly anything from it except for the costumes. I think it's such a nice film. There's not a bad bone in its body. I think everything about it is just well done. I think in terms of history, no, it's not going to be remembered as Spotlight would or wouldn't have if it didn't win, you know, just as a film by itself. Mm -hmm. But again, Mad Max Fury Road, I think we're never going to get a film like this ever again. I think... George Miller did amazing work apart from the entire team. I mean, every single part of this movie is captivating. It's so intense. Every single moment from the beginning to the very end in the final shot of Charlize. I, I, just everything about it, the cinematography, the effects, the fact that a lot of this wasn't CGI and you had these huge driving sequences happening in this desert. And I think the themes it touches on too and in this apocalyptic world, I mean, I definitely need to listen to the director's commentary. I hope there is one. I think in 20 years, I'm gonna be rewatching Mad Max Fury Road and not Spotlight. I am just here playing the game. Like I know (laughs) this, but... And I've been on the record for saying, like, I think that Mad Max Fury Road is, you know, one of the most iconic films of the decade. It's one that will stand the test of time. The fact that it shouldn't have even happened and it did is wild. I think that what's interesting is that Mad Max Fury Road runs into a lot of problems that movies that don't win Best Picture, but maybe should, if you look at them later, do. So it won six Oscars. Those were Best Film Editing, Best Production Design, costume design, makeup and hairstyling, sound mixing, and sound editing. 
I remember watching this Oscars too and just it winning everything, like all of the below the line categories. It was just, it kept winning over and over again. But again, like I think for a movie to really stick with voters, unfortunately, like they want actors and they want writing. Like they want a script that they can like latch onto. And this didn't have that in the same way. Like the writing wasn't recognized and neither were any of the actors. Whereas Spotlight had better ensemble of actors, I would say, and a better script, which is what pushed it through. I think in addition to it, it's just more palatable for the average viewer. I think that, I mean, it was on tons of critics top 10 lists for the end of the year. It was one of my favorites of the year, but I think that when you're thinking about like what the Academy goes for, and best picture this makes perfect sense because it's something that sheds light on a very important issue very important story gives voices to people in a very new way i think as an action film the academy doesn't really respond to this especially Mm -hmm. in the best picture category just looking at the 2010s i think the closest thing we get to winning is argo which is a war film but much more story and writing based than anything action happening that same year zero dark 30 was nominated kind of surprising to me but just like Mad Max it didn't win I think for an older voting crowd you want the story that's impactful to a people and that is definitely what Spotlight is I'm happy it won all the below the line awards because it deserved all of them I think it was just another year we mentioned this before but like, it was just unfortunate that Mad Max had to go up against it. Yeah, and I think, too, like, Mad Max, unfortunately, like, lost because of the preferential ballot. It's such a visceral experience watching it. You really are thrown into it. You cannot look away at any moment. It's, like, full trip that you're on, and I can see voters not making it through or responding really poorly to that, and they probably ranked it low. I know I'm, like, biting for spotlight here, but it is the one that's I think we'll remember down the road, and we have. I think that Spotlight getting Best Picture, though, is important because now it's more of a well-known film and so rewatchable. So that was our first set of Oscar debates. I think that we can do more another time, maybe, maybe with a different decade. But these were fun. I think we picked categories that weren't too off the wall, but I think it was fun. I think it was. it's always good to look back on the Oscars and try to litigate whether or not they made the right call. And make me appreciate things maybe more than I do. So it's fun to talk about some of our favorite movies from this decade. So for our next pod, we'll be talking about the 1990 best picture nominees we were going to do this a while ago and we delayed it for some reason i forgot it was because i'm thinking of ending things came out and we just like watched that and had to talk about it so (laughs) these movies that we'll be talking about are a little less wild and out of control than that one i would say so these were from the 1995 oscars and the best picture nominees forrest gump being the winner four weddings and a funeral pulp fiction Quiz Show, and The Shawshank Redemption. I can't wait to talk about these. I have very controversial opinions about quite a few of them, so I'm very ready. These are some big films, and I think we'll get into a little debate here as well to talk about if Forrest Gump deserved a win, what else we think should have won out of these five choices. So it will be fun to talk about this group of films. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening today. We hope that you had fun and enjoyed our 2010s Oscars debates and stay safe and wear your masks. Thanks again, everybody. Stay safe. We'll see you next time.